pray. Father, I pray that the meditation of my heart and uh, the words of my mouth would be pleasing in Your sight. Lord, I pray that You would give everyone here uh, ears to hear, uh, eyes to see, hearts to believe and obey Your holy word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. When it comes to biblical interpretation, I like sticking with the crowd. I like to read the commentaries and find that they are saying the same things that I am thinking. For me to be out on an island thinking something different than all the many smart people who have uh, studied the text uh, and written uh, commentaries on the text... um, For me to be out there away from them is a dangerous place to be. In other words, if I disagree with all the commentaries, then there is a 999,000 chance out of a million that I'm going to be wrong. I say this to warn you (laughs) that I'm out on that island this morning. Uh, I see this text a bit differently than all the commentators that I read this week. Um, so you might be saying, well, well, Pastor, are you telling me to take what you say with a grain of salt this morning? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, test me and see if what I'm saying bears out. Now, just to reassure you, uh, I'm not too far out on a limb. I'm not saying something radical or new. Um, I am simply have a different view of this text than many of the commentators. And I will say, many of the commentators threw up their hands and said, I don't understand what's going on here. Uh, So at least I feel like I understand this passage. Um, Martin Luther said of this passage, Solomon really makes some harsh transitions. Pete Inns said that it appears it appeared that Solomon was in a scattered, even frantic effort to express himself. Doug O'Donnell said it is not easy finding the flow and thought of the overarching theme of this text. And Philip Ryken, uh, who I greatly respect, we call him in our denomination the the uh, the boy preacher because he looks like he's like. 15, and he's like in his 50s or something, Uh, but he's a bright fella. Even he says that this passage is not a carefully constructed argument. Most The reason why the commentators struggle is they're saying that Solomon's trying to draw a contrast between two ways to live, Um, the way of wisdom and the way of folly. And so when they go forward with this uh, this overlay on the text, this particular text, these verses, these eleven verses, then there are some passages in these eleven verses that don't really fit that overlay. So what do I think this passage is saying? Well, I think Solomon is seeking to teach the wise to remember how easy it is to act foolishly. Sometimes a very wise and godly person might make a foolish mistake that will cost them dearly. 
So, for instance, a wise and godly person might act foolishly by looking down at a text message while he or she is driving and cause a terrible accident. A wise and godly person might make a foolish investment because they are impatient about their financial plan. A wise and godly person might speak an unkind word to their overbearing boss and get fired from their job. A wise and godly person might get distracted working with power tools and lose a finger or two. So this is not a real deep and spiritual way of looking at this passage. But if you heed what it's saying, it might save you, it might save your life or save you from great suffering if you put it into practice. So for instance, let's look at verse 1. Solomon paints a very gross image for us. Here in in verse 1, the perfumer had made a big batch of perfume, but he he didn't close the lid very tightly. And the perfumes that were made 2,750 years ago were very different than the perfumes we have today. Whatever the perfumes were made of attracted flies. Ladies, you wouldn't want to wear that kind of perfume, I wouldn't think. But uh, apparently it was better than the the stench of the body odor. Uh, So, um, this perfume and this big batch of perfume that the perfumer had made with the, 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 the lid not closed tightly attracted several flies. They'd gotten into the batch of perfume and they had a feast. They were gluttonous. They ended up dying in there. And then their rotting carcasses gave off such a stench that it turned the whole batch of perfume into something rancid. Something that no one would want to uh, have associated with them when you walk into a room. And so Solomon's point is that a very small but foolish decision can destroy the life of a wise and honorable person. It doesn't take much foolishness to turn things sour because folly really stinks. All it takes is one rash word, one rude remark, one hasty decision, one foolish pleasure that is indulged, or one angry outburst to spoil everything. So he says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Derek Kidner says that it is easier to make a stink than it is to create sweetness. I think he's right. To live a wise and honorable or godly life It means that you have to consider your decisions and your actions. Every day, you must make a string of decisions that go against the flow of our culture. You must consider what God says and what experience has taught you. To live a wise and honorable 
life or a godly life, you can't just live by the seat of your pants and do whatever feels right in the moment. You have to to be vigilant. You young people, you have to be especially vigilant in the way you live. You have to be especially vigilant to think about the choices and actions. You don't have the life experience that most adults have. And you are surrounded by people who lack that same experience. Young people, you need to be vigilant. We all need to be vigilant. Because we all continue to be sinners. We all struggle with impatience. We all struggle with um, temptations to respond in kind when someone speaks um, harshly to us. We're all tempted to cut a corner to, um, to try and get ahead faster. You know, as I'm speaking to the young people, it reminds me that Danita and Jim Belisario, our excellent youth directors, have pitched to me a plan for uh, us as a congregation to pl- pray for our children and our young people uh, during this summer. With the challenges that our young people face daily, I am enthusiastic about praying for our youth that they would seek wisdom and godliness as they live their lives and grow towards maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. They need our prayers because as Solomon tells us, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. I'm going to skip over verses 2 and 3. I'll come back to them at the end of the sermon. I want to skip now to verses 4 through 7 because Solomon wants to instruct the wise on one of the greatest temptations that the wise face on a daily basis. With the world being filled with so many fools, the wise are going to have to put up with a lot of foolishness. The old saying that we should not suffer fools lightly, that's wrong. Look at verse 4. He says, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So Solomon here is, is painting a picture of a wise and honorable person being in the presence of a political leader. And the, the ruler, uh, the political ruler, political leader, is doing what politicians typically do. He's making foolish decisions without due regard for the people who will be affected. And so it would be very tempting if you have audience with this ruler to speak some words of wisdom to him with much vigor. But Solomon's saying, don't do that. Because the thing is, you very rarely change a fool's mind, especially when they are perceived to have more power than you do. Solomon says it is better to remain calm, to remain composed, and to keep your mouth shut if you found yourself in that position. Proverbs 15 says, if you're going to say anything, say it with much kindness. 
Proverbs 15 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. First Peter gives the same counsel. The early Christians were being persecuted by the governing authorities. And what does Peter tell them to do? Peter tells them, remain calm, remain composed, keep your mouth shut, and do good. Listen to Peter. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Sounds to me like Peter had been meditating on Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 4. Peter told the servants, the Christians who were servants in a person's home or slaves in a person's home, to respect their masters even if their masters were unjust. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures suffering or sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's very tempting for us to put a time limit on the injustice we are called to endure. There is no time limit. And then to wives living with unbelieving husbands, Peter said, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respect and pure conduct doesn't seem right. Why should God ask us to continue to suffer by serving those who are over us when they are acting unjustly against us? Well, Peter answers that question. He says, For it is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, Peter says... He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when you're in those situations, when there is this overwhelming temptation to respond in kind or to speak a harsh word, Peter says, look to Christ. He gave you an example that you might follow. Therefore, He will surely give you the grace to be calm and composed while you speak softly. Verses 5 through 7 is uh, one of those passages that uh, the commentators were struggling with. 
Um, I struggled with it as well until I realized I was overthinking it. Verses 5 through 7 is Solomon's way of saying that there are going to be many temptations because there are many fools. He says it isn't right, and it makes no sense that, that so many fools would be in positions of power. But that's the way it is. So verses 5 through 7, There is an evil I have seen under the sun, as it, as it were an error, error proceeding from the ruler. Folly set in many high places, and the rich set in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. And so he is saying, it doesn't make any sense that there are so many rulers in high places. It's like a prince over there sitting in the dust while the slave is riding on the prince's horse. It doesn't make any sense. Or like a, a rich man uh, who is sitting in a low place doesn't make any sense when he has the, the power and the, the money to, to go sit in a home or, or in, a, in a higher place than he's sitting. And so I think that's what he's simply saying. He's saying that many of the world's greatest fools managed to climb the, upon the, managed to climb high upon the rungs of political power. That's the way it's always been. That's the way it was in Solomon's day. That's the way it continues to be in our day. Mark Twain said, Suppose you were an idiot. And suppose you were a member of Congress. But I repeat myself. <laughs> I put a note in my, uh, my uh, notes. And I was going to... At uh, game time, as I'm going through, decide whether I was going to mention it or not. And I think I'm going to mention it. I'm from Georgia. There is a U.S. congressman who continues to be a U.S. congressman named Hank Johnson. And uh, he was on a committee uh, questioning an admiral because they were about to move a number of troops to Guam. Uh, like thousands and thousands of troops to Guam, and the the base on Guam is um, on part of the island. Guam's about 24 miles long, seven or eight miles wide. Uh, Ed, Ed, somewhere around here. Um, you know, he's from Guam. He and he and Hillary are about to go to Guam. Well, Hank Johnson, in ask, ask in front of this committee, he was asking this admiral. Uh, if you put too many uh, troops there, might Guam tip over? <laughs> and the, the admiral's looking. You could see he almost broke a smile. And he said, Congressman, we don't anticipate that. <laughs> you know, fools manage to climb the, the rungs of power. If you doubt me, you can Google it and uh, see the, the YouTube of it. Not now. But uh, let's move on. Uh, let's look at verses 8 and 9. Solomon gives four examples of people getting hurt on the job. This, again, was uh, one thing that the commentators struggle with, I struggled with. This is actually what caused me to change my mind on this passage and go out on the limb. Uh, it seems out of place, these four examples 
of people getting hurt on the job in verses 8 and 9. Because if you're looking at the passage from the standpoint of, of uh, a foolish way to live and a wise way to live, this just seems out of place. But it makes sense if you understand that Solomon is simply giving practical wisdom to the wise to avoid the little follies of life. So verses 8 and 9. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. So one guy's just digging a pit and accidentally falls into the pit. Another guy is um, is breaking down a wall, and there's a, a snake among the rubble that bites him. Another guy is um, splitting logs. Um, I'm sorry, he's in a quarry, and a rock falls and hits his leg or something like that. Another guy's splitting logs, and log, you know, a piece of log flies up and hits him in the eye or something. You know, just things that would happen naturally on the job. There are no wicked plans being carried out. It's simply people getting hurt in accidents. You know, we used to have a father and son who were builders um, in our congregation. And between them, they had well over 50 years of experience, maybe approaching 60 or more. And they're great men. But when you, ex- when you extended your hand to shake their hand, you got a nub back in, in, in uh, return. And what Solomon is saying is that you pay attention to what you're doing year after year, um, every minute of the day. In over 50 years, you might have three seconds of distraction using your power tools, and the next thing you know, you're picking up your finger off the floor. Solomon is telling us, to be patient when we're carrying out the task of life, when we're at work or whatever we're doing. To pay attention and don't cut corners. And so this, he, he confirms uh, this interpretation in verses 10 and 11. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. So if you're on the job and you're too impatient to sharpen the axe, then you're going to work harder in the end. Or if you're too, if you're a a snake charmer and you're too impatient to fully charm the snake, you're going to get bit and you're going to die. I'll say this. Our axe uh, at my home is very dull and a couple of weeks ago I had several big limbs to cut. There was some storm that blew through and all these limbs fell. I looked everywhere for my sharpening stone. Um, I was about to go out and buy a sharpening stone when I realized that I had a son. <laughs> so I told him to go out and cut the limbs. <laughs> I hope I've succeeded in making the argument that this is a passage directed to the wise, encouraging us to watch out for the little follies that can cost us dearly. But I, almost, I also must point out that Solomon does give us an example of the fool to serve as a contrast with the wise to encourage us to live wisely. So look at verses 2 and 3, and this will be our concluding point. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. 
I'm sorry, I started in verse 3. Verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, this guy in verse 3 is not walking around shouting to everybody, Hey, I'm a fool, I'm a fool. Rather, Solomon is saying he looks so foolish that um, he can't even, or he is so foolish that he can't even do something as commonplace as walk down the road without everyone realizing that this person is a fool. You know what I'm talking about. You know, you, 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 you may not know a person, but you can observe. This person's a fool. What's the difference between a wise person and being a fool? Well, it comes down to the inclination of a person's heart. A wise person's heart inclines to the right, but a fool's heart inclines to the left. Now, he's not saying that left-handed people are fools um, or that right-handed people are righteous. Uh, he's just using a common biblical metaphor. The Bible describes a fool not as being left-handed, but as lacking in. T- um, but as I'm sorry, the Bible describes a fool not as lacking intelligence. Um, there are many very, very wise fools. Some of the, the world's most of the world's smartest people would fall into the, the biblical definition of a fool. A fool is described in the Bible, according to Psalm 14, as someone who lacks the proper fear of God, who says in his or her heart, there is no God. Further, Philip Ryken makes a very important distinction. I was helpful for his remark. He said... Um, he, he says that folly and wickedness is not the same thing. Some people are deliberately wicked, but the fool is characterized instead by impulsive disobedience. Uh, the, the fool is characterized by self-centered arrogance, by rash disregard for the holiness of God. They're not sitting down at night trying to figure out how they can be wicked. They're just living by the seat of their pants living selfishly and self-centeredly without regard to God. And because they are living without regard regard to God, they're going to uh, be prone to going in the wrong direction in their life. Their heart doesn't incline them to God, so they are going in a different direction away from God. It might not be a path of malicious evil, but it is a path that leads away from God away from His righteousness, away from His salvation. Look again at verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Which way are you going in? Are you moving toward God or away from Him? The fool goes away from God because his or heart or his or her heart is not inclined toward God. Your heart is the core of your being. Your heart is the center of your affection, the source of your purpose and emotion. In other words, your life follows your heart. The direction of your life 
therefore, exposes the inclination of your heart. By the direction you are walking in, tells you whether you are have a heart that is inclined toward wisdom or a heart that is inclined towards foolishness. So I ask again, which way is your heart inclined? Toward God or away from Him? Do you have a growing appetite for the Word of God? Or does the Bible taste stale to you? Are you moving toward Him or away from God in prayer? Are you getting more serious about sin or have you stopped pursuing personal sanctification? If you'll stop and look and examine your life, you can gain great insight into your heart and in the true quality of your faith. The inclination of your heart determines the direction of your life. So if you find yourself going down the path of the fool, stop where you are and ask God to give you a new heart that inclines towards Him. Ask Him to remove your foolish heart and give you a new heart that Christ purchased on the cross for His people. Look to Christ. He's the great heart surgeon. Trust in Him. Rely on Him for grace to change you. Because He will do it. The fool looks to self for power to change. Sadly, that change is fleeting. It won't last. Go to Christ. Go to Him now. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray together. Almighty God, I pray for our young people who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray for all of us who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because there are many temptations, many trials, many opportunities to act foolishly in the small things and bring great harm and destruction to our lives. God, help us to be patient when patience is called for. Help us to keep our mouths closed when, when a harsh word is spoken to us. Lord, help us not to cut corners, to get ahead uh, unwisely, but help us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Him. Lord, I pray for any here who are on the, the fool's path. Lord, I pray that You would grant them uh, grace to call upon You for a new heart that inclines towards You. I ask in Jesus' name, Amen.